Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We believe leaders provide a major lever to improve the world, and we're committed to elevating the quality of leadership and supporting those leaders with frameworks and processes to help them co-create a better future. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. With me on the show today is Jake Jacobs. He's the author of a new book, Leveraging Change, Eight Ways to Achieve Easier, Faster, Better Results. Jake, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I started working with organizations when I was in college and tending bar, and I had a uh, workplace where people complained, not like many workplaces, and I was taking psychology courses and I thought I could get an independent study credit and I could maybe help the bar be a better place to work. So I asked the owner if I could do a consulting job, some interviews and a couple of meetings, and he said, sure, Jake, just don't F anything up. And so that became my first contract with a client. Did some interviews. We had a couple of meetings. Things did get a little bit better. And I had found my calling in life. And uh, I'm proud to say I did not F anything up in the process. So that's a, a great start to not mess anything up. <laughs> I can also tell you that I've worked on the front lines of all kinds of change efforts for 35 years. A couple examples. One was a large multi-stakeholder effort around a tuberculosis control project in New York City. There was a pending pandemic, and that was uh, before we really knew what a pandemic would entail. But five city agencies had to agree on treatment protocols and budgets and all kinds of things that had not played well together in the past. And importantly, there were homeless people who were getting this. And if they didn't get regular medication, they would have drug-resistant strains of TB that would show up. And so one of the things that was important, we're getting those treatment protocols in place. And I'm I'm proud to say there's been an 85% decline in the last 27 years since we had that project. And last year was the lowest reported incidence of TB since they started tracking in 1897. So that's one example of a large complex effort. And then on a more specific level, an executive team in a regional transit company that needed to create a a more results-oriented culture and working with them, role negotiations, even meetings and how they got structured and handled, that's also part of the work that I do. So it's a pretty wide base of clients and situations that I find myself in, and all of them come back to that title of the book, people interested in faster, easier, better results, whatever those might be. Fabulous. It sounds like you've got great experience that led you into writing the book. I say that what I've done is with the book is distilled 35 years of experience into these eight smart strategic actions that people 
can put in place. And as we were talking before we got started, Maureen, immediately. So I'm really interested in immediate impact and have that last over time. And so putting those two pieces of the puzzle together is, is really what the core of my work is. Fabulous. So change is now a constant for all organizations. And Jake's work proposes approaches to make it faster and easier. He joins me today to talk about his book and how leaders can use the concepts of leverage to achieve faster, easier, better results relating to all change work they're doing in their organization at the individual team and organizational level. As he talked about, he's worked at all of those levels. And I want to start with, I've been in the change arena as well for now decades, and it seems like we were saying the organization's ability to achieve their stated business outcomes has been significantly lower than we would anticipate. It depends on whose numbers between 65 and 80% of change projects don't achieve the business outcomes. The thing may happen, but it doesn't deliver the value. Can you speak a little bit about, I assume your work helps organizations get early value and sustained value? Absolutely. For me, Maureen, what I would say is it goes back to this concept of leverage. And so I define leverage as how do you get more done with fewer hassles, headaches, and problems that people usually experience when they're trying to bring about change. And that goes for any scope or scale. When the word comes up, anxiety goes up. And like you said, that number may be somewhere between 65 and 80, but it's way too high in terms of people falling short of the results. And so the concept of leverage for me goes back to Archimedes. And for your listeners who who aren't familiar, he was a third century BC Greek mathematician. What he was famous for saying and describing this concept of leverage was, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and single-handed I shall move the world. And so I believe that people have the opportunity to move their worlds in the arena of change by using what I've written in the book. And each of these levers deals with a common problem that people experience when they're trying to create change. And then I developed a lever to address that particular problem. So Jake, I love the idea that you've created multiple levers and will help our listeners understand how to use those specific levers. Let's step back for a minute and talk a little bit about the overview of your change approach. So what systems, challenges, and opportunities is your leverage change approach best suited to address? Maureen, if there are listeners out there that are frustrated that the results they're achieving are, are too slow, too hard, or too disappointing, this is a podcast that they should be listening to. The idea of putting together some practical, proven ways to deal with these common problems, resistance to change, change fatigue, that you're overwhelmed with so much of it and it's not stopping. If they have a stalled effort, something that you know got out of the starting gates and then seems to be stalled, or it could be they're still on a path to success, but it feels like slogging through mud on the way to the finish line. These are all great opportunities to apply these levers. And as simply put as I can, you know, this faster, easier, 
better results is at the end of the day what it's about. And it's a very flexible approach, as you said, individuals just looking at their calendar and seeing how they're spending their time, teams that are looking at how to improve their performance or or design a meeting, or organizations that are looking at culture change or strategy implementation issues. All of these are great opportunities to pull the levers out and put them to work. And you put them to work and they'll work for you. So it sounds like both formal organizational change and also less formal business change, and you could use these levers at other places in your life as well. Absolutely. In fact, I I talked to one person, Maureen, and they said, I think you have the next chicken soup for the soul here. I said, what are you talking about? And they said, have you ever used these levers with relationships? I smiled and I thought, well, you know, maybe in my own without knowing it. And they said, you know, if you've got a teenager and you're having issues, if you're talking about faster, easier, better results, couldn't you envision the ideal relationship that you would have with your significant other or your child or something that's going on in the PTA or a community organization? Couldn't you apply these? And I said, well, I've got the leverage change leader and the leverage change organization in my head as the next books, but maybe the leverage change relationship is out there yet to be written. Beautiful. So why don't you walk us through the levers so we're not talking around it, but we're talking actually about your model? Because I think our sure. listeners would love to hear more direct information. Sure. So here's the first problem that I addressed was there's too much change. And this is that change fatigue issue. And most people, when they're dealing with this situation, there's too much change. What the natural reaction is, I think, is to hunker down. It's trying to take cover and try and reduce the experience of change. It's overwhelming. How do we get away from it? I believe that what we need to do is also focus on what not to change. And often this gets overlooked in organizations. So the lever is pay attention to continuity. And if you can champion continuity, I believe and I have found with my clients, you'll soon be celebrating successful change. The continuity means what have we done well? What are we going to continue doing? That this notion that it feels like everything's up in the air when we're talking about change, but that's not true. It's not the reality. And so if we can pay attention to continuity, and I've had clients make lists of all the things they're going to continue doing the way they have and where they've been overwhelmed by change and, you know, literally slumping down in the chairs. I mean, you can tell energetically that it's not a positive experience. When they start building these lists of continuity, they do sit up more. The energy does return to the room and they do see that there's a lot of good work they've already done and they've already made progress towards creating that future in work that they've done that they wouldn't have paid attention to. And even when leaders send notes or they hold town hall meetings, I think it's equally important for them to talk about what's going to stay the same. And typically, that's not what gets attention. People get up and they talk about change, and it becomes not only the topic of the day, but it becomes the topic of every day. And that's where I think people get exhausted, and it feels like it's a never-ending battle to get on top of it. And that's just not true. What we need is a whole picture of the situation, and part of that picture is continuity. So that's the first lever. I love that. And it sounds like part of that lever is the positive psychology piece of what are we actually doing well, not just what's not going to change because we can't, but we do some stuff really well 
And we need to acknowledge that and take it as a win. Absolutely. And those are wins that you can count before you even get started. Right. But people don't pay attention to them and they get swept under the carpet. And the worst thing that happens is that people get caught up in change and they drop the ball on the things that they've been doing well. So they don't pay attention to them and they end up not doing as well on the things that have been strong competencies or or successes in the past. And so that's another reason, you're absolutely right, why to pay attention to continuity. Also, you're right about positive psychology that, in fact, seeing these successes starts to build confidence to be able to better deal with the change in front of you. I love that. What's lever number two? So the problem is, Change takes too long. There are a lot of leaders who find this challenging because they need to make changes for the marketplace, for competition, to implement new technologies. So people get impatient. And I believe the reason that change takes too long comes back to our paradigm around the future. People see the future as something out there that will arrive at a later point in time. It's separate from us. You can say vision 2025 or whatever. And by definition, I think what we do is we put our mind into a place that says we'll get there in 2025. And so we have to wait between now and then to accomplish that vision. If we think and act as if the future were now, which is the second lever What we can do is rather than waiting for that future to unfold, we reach out, we grab some piece of it, whatever image you may have of what better looks like, and pull it back into the present. So you don't wait for that future, but you actually live it today. I've had a client who said to me, they went into an executive team meeting and they just introduced the concept. They just said, think and act as if the future were today. And the CIO came back the next day with a whole list of action steps that needed to be taken if they were living in the future that they preferred rather than the present that they had been experiencing. And that idea of what would be different, and you know, there's a story that I have of a client They were trying to figure out how to take advantage of opportunities in a new sales region. And the executive spent a few hours talking through this, and they'd come up with two ideas on how to deal with this, but couldn't decide between the two. I said to them, I said, look, you say you want a more participative organization. What would that look like here? Who would be in the room? How would you make decisions? What approach would you take to this? And they looked at me and they said, well, more people would be in the room. And I said, well, who? And they said, salespeople from the other regions, the new salespeople we've hired for this region. And they started to build a list of stakeholders that would be in the room. And I said, all right, let's get them in the room. And so they pulled out the calendars and they started to make their agenda for next week's meeting. I said, no, no, now, here, who's in the room? And so what we did is we took a break And they said, well, we gathered everybody who was in the office and they got people on the phone, they got people on the video, everybody who would be in this conversation in the future, they brought into the room immediately. They listened to these people and what they did is they actually came up with a third answer that was better than the two that they'd been arguing about in the morning already. So rather than this waiting or planning for the future, it's like, no, Think and act as if it's now. How would I behave if I were in that future? Start behaving that way now. And what you find is the future happens a lot faster. 
I love that. And it sounds like underpinning that is a shift in mindset. Absolutely. Fundamental is that paradigm. And I've said this to a lot of people through the years, you can almost snap your fingers and people get it. It's so visceral that you go, oh, well, I'd start doing this. I'd start doing that. And they get a list of things that are part of that preferred future. Not everything can you do immediately, but you'd be surprised at the list that you can build of new thoughts and behaviors if you adopt this paradigm. And it's just like Once you start to see the world this way and you get an organization of people seeing it this way, so change starts to take hold all over the organization and people who are like, show me, prove to me that this is for real this time. And you look left and right and you see your colleagues starting to behave differently and do business in new ways. That virtuous cycle, that momentum for change starts to build throughout the organization. So you don't just get the payoff the first time around in terms of people doing business differently, but you get a second payoff when others see them doing business differently and they jump on the bandwagon. I want to add a third benefit to that. I worked with a large client who was implementing an ERP system. They pulled the new behaviors forward, even though the system wasn't in place, just did them by paper, not automated. And that reduced the risk dramatically because they were able to work out the behaviors, the job descriptions, all that stuff was done. And then the system implementation was just a system implementation, which is not insignificant, but it's very different than hiring new people, reorganizing all your processes when someone hits a switch, which is destined for high risk across almost any enterprise. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me, I did a lot of work early in my career in the automotive industry when uh, quality was becoming to the forefront and the Japanese were competing with the Americans. And prevent instead of find and fix was one of the slogans that became well-known and and well-used there. And so what you're describing, I think, also is the benefit. You can test things out and see how does it work and what works and what doesn't. And how do we make, I call it rapid prototyping in the book, Mm -hmm. but it's like, how can you get out there and start testing things and trying them out and finding what works, making course corrections, getting better and better each day by living in that future? It sounds like using the mindset of, rapid testing, make a small change now and let it ripple through your system. Yep, absolutely. So what's the next lever? The next lever deals with the problem of people saying this was not invented here. So a lot of change approaches get rejected because they say, have you done this in a team like ours? Have you done this in our industry? Have you done this in an organization of our size? So those are valid questions right? They want proof points. And the lever that I designed to deal with this is called design it yourself. And what this means is that an organization and the people in it have the right and the responsibility to design their own change process. So what the purposes of it, what the outcomes, what the roadmap, All of these things are things that get decided by the organization. And this is not to say that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are past change efforts that organizations have had that parts of them or all of them have been successful. So we're going to leverage those, to use that word, take advantage of what's worked in the past, pay attention to continuity and celebrate what's worked and build that into 
this time around. Also, look for other best practices and other ways that you need to do business in the world of change so that you end up designing yourself. And the ownership that comes with this is huge. We get design teams together. I'm a believer that says no two change efforts should ever look the same that their unique circumstances and their different situations, even in the same organization, it's in a different time, a different place. And so having this ownership around designing the change effort, I think it's really a critical element. And if you get stuck with somebody else's method, you end up jumping through hoops and it doesn't always make sense for you. So I say, you know, use what works and then design what else you need. I assume that's probably an 80-20 that proven methodologies work 80% of the time and they tailor about 20. Yeah. And the thing is that 80-20 rule is right because you don't need to start from scratch. Big conversation with clients about what are all the things that you can use and then what is it that we need to customize. And so I bring tools and processes that I've used in other organizations, but that very fundamental question of who's going to be involved and then when are they involved and how are they involved? These are all decisions that I think, like I said, they're a right and responsibility. You, you get to do this, but you're also accountable for designing something that's going to work for your organization that you can trust. And this not invented here problem comes off the table entirely. Mm-hmm. You can't say, have you ever? Because the answer is, well, we haven't ever worked with an organization exactly like yours. So let's make sure that the change process we put in place fits for you and you uniquely. And I want to play the other side of that fence. It took you 30 years to build the capacity you have. For someone to say, you didn't do it exactly my way, so I'm going to start from scratch is not wise. And not only have I got that 30 years, but there are a whole lot of people who've done a whole lot of good work in the world of change. And and organizations have adopted different things through the years. All I'm saying is make sure that at the end of the day, it's something that really works for you and it should work exceptionally well. This is not about let's go halfway and it's pretty good or it's good enough. No, it ought to be the best that you can do because that's what you deserve for your organization. Your customers deserve it. And what you'll find is it works a lot better that way. Well, and you get the buy-in. Absolutely. What's lever four then? Lever four deals with a common problem that people don't know enough to make good decisions when they're making changes. And, you know, this one shows up, people at the top of the house look at frontline employees and say, you know, why don't they get the strategy? I've had, you know, CEOs say to me, I've gone over this so many times. I've sent memos out. I've had meetings. I've done videos, like all of these communication strategies to get this message out, and they still don't seem to get it. And, you know, you go to the frontline employees, and they have a different conversation about the same thing. They're like, why is it that those senior executives don't understand what it's like day to day to try and make this happen on the front lines? And so if you don't know enough to make good decisions, the lever I developed is called create a common database. And create a common database means that the information that you have that others need, it's your responsibility to share it with them. I do some videos on LinkedIn, Jake on Change, little two-minute videos. And I did one on, if you have a secret, share it. 
So if I know something and you're in a different function and you need that information to make a good decision, then it's my responsibility to make sure you know it. And if you don't know something, it's your responsibility to go out and find somebody who does. And so that whole notion of create a common database, that data will be different in all kinds of different situations. But the notion that we need to make uninformed decisions or we don't know enough to be smart and strategic, I think that that it just doesn't have to be that way. And creating a common database, if that's in everybody's mind in an organization, and they're saying, who else needs to know what I just learned? It's a lot smarter organization, a lot more strategic, and it's going to be a lot more successful. I love the idea that people are sharing across the organization, because to your point, frontline and senior executives rarely speak. And having a mechanism to share the right information at the right time in a way that can meaningfully inform decisions is a really powerful tool and quite rare in my experience. Yeah, and like you said, you know, with your ERP example, there are systems and processes and tools that help make this happen. And those are absolutely critical. And the tool alone is not going to get the job done. I mean, it'll take care of some basic fundamental pieces. But what I'm also talking about are are deeper conversations about strategic issues and exploring with each other. I mean, I, I put in the book, Maureen, there are four magic words that I wish every leader would be able to use. You know, we said have something that you can immediately take away from this podcast and use. And those four magic words are, could you say more? By saying those, right, it's an invitation, especially if you're in a position of authority or power. If you're saying to somebody, could you say more? It's an invitation for them to come onto the playing field even more than they have been. And you encourage people, especially when they have a different point of view, right? If you get a bunch of people who agree with you, you may be on the right path, but it's the people who see things that you don't see. And I wrote another book called You Don't Have to Do It Alone, how to involve others to get things done. And we had a whole section devoted to what we called troublemakers. Troublemakers, you know, we all know who they are. They're the people who like raise the issue after the decision's been made. They're always seeing one more aspect of the problem than everybody else. And what we say is that troublemaking is in the eye of the beholder. And if I see you as a troublemaker, you're going to tend to behave like one. If I see you as a valuable resource who's watching my backside for things that I don't pay attention to, I'm going to treat you much differently. I love that just pivot in perspective that when we collaborate, and we talk about this as a mindset as well, the highly effective leader has to be able to synthesize competing and differing points of view to create a solution that integrates those different perspectives rather than you win, you lose. How do we actually co-create something that didn't exist previously? And the first thing that needs to happen is the invitation, right? Those four words, could you say more? Once that invitation is extended and it's, and it's genuine, you'll find a whole wealth of information becomes available to you that, that otherwise you're just, in a way, flying at least partially blind. Let's go on to lever five. So the next one is around their fixed methods that say usually, right, start from the top, that we've got to get senior management, buy-in, support, and that needs to be in place. Now, there are other people who would argue, 
grassroots is the way to go, right? Some people saying, well, start in the middle. I mean, top, bottom, middle. What I have an argument for in a lever that says start with impact, follow the energy, And so there was a client that I worked with that called and there's a telecom company and they had 10,000 people. They just laid off a thousand people and they called me. They knew I had worked with large group interactive decision-making meetings. And so they called and they said, you know, we want to do something to try and change the culture and bring the culture in sync with the strategy. And we've got 80 people coming together for a problem solving meeting. Now, That's not going to solve a problem with losing market share in a 10,000 person organization, but it was an opportunity. And I have this thing about, will it be better for my having been there? And if the answer is yes, then I'll roll my sleeves up and, and get into middle of all kinds of messes. What happened was, yeah, we did good work with that 80. At the end, the CEO came into the room and we've got a video of him mouthing the word, wow. Because what happened is he saw the possibility of engaging so many people in positive and productive ways. It turned into a two-year change effort that was written up in Business Week and Fortune and had a 500-person meeting looking at what the new strategy and vision and values needed to be. There was an 800-person interactive working session to translate that mission, vision, and values into daily operations. And so this notion of start with impact, follow the energy says, where can you make a difference? That, I believe, is the place to go do your work. And that where you're going to make a difference is it varies organization to organization, but finding where you can make, and sometimes it's where there are easy wins. In some organizations, that's what gets people's attention. And in some organizations, going where it's the hardest to make progress is the right answer for impact because people will say, this is serious, this is real, I can invest in this because they're taking on the toughest nuts to crack. And then Follow the energy. Look where the work wants to go. And the organization will tell you, if you pay attention and you see, I had another client in New York City, the public health care system, and we did some initial work across the whole system. And then they had individual institutions, each hospital or ambulatory care center. And we had a meeting to say, who wants to go next? Everybody raised their hand. So the energy in that case was around the whole organization. And so what we did is we figured out a way to move forward in multiple organizations, not as far as we would have if we focused on one, but moving on many fronts at once was the right answer in that situation. And so that's where the energy was. That's what we followed. I love the idea of starting where people are willing to move because pushing efforts that people aren't going to buy in and even worse, actively resist just cost time, money, and credibility. So following the energy is a brilliant tact. The next lever. This deals with the problem. And if I've heard this once, I've heard it a million times in organizations. You have, and I'm sure your listeners have, which is people standing on the sidelines saying, what's in it for me, right? What am I going to get out of this? Why should I bother making this change? And a lot of people look at that and say, they're being selfish. They're thinking of themselves first. And I look at it and I say, actually, they're being human. This is not an unreasonable question to ask in terms of what the future could look like. So the lever that I came up with 
was around develop a future people want to call their own. So if I'm worried about what's in it for me, and I had a client that stood in the doorway of a meeting with the change team and literally one foot in the door and one foot outside the door for the whole first day. So you talk about being on the fence. I mean, literally, physically on the fence. What we did is we talked about, well, what is a future that people want to call their own? Once I can develop that kind of future, people join. They don't worry about what's in it for them anymore because they see a future that they want to be part of. And this individual, his name happened to literally be Joe, stood there and he came up at the beginning of the second day and he said, I'm going to take a seat at the table because this is the kind of organization I want to belong to. The way that you're talking about the future, I want to be part of that. And so if you can develop that future and make it compelling and clear and convincing, people will not worry about what's in it for them. They will already see what's in it for them and they will join that effort because it's enlightened self-interest. It's going to be a future that is one they're excited to be part of. I love, again, the pivot away from burning platform, you're going to die if you don't do something, to let us paint the image of the future. And that goes back to your first one, the future you're joining, the future you're co-creating. There are also problems we're trying to fix, but most people don't put their heart into fixing problems. They put their heart into creating something that is better than what they have now. Absolutely. I mean, I know that's true for me and I can check it for myself and it's much more motivating to go after what you want than to try and run from what you don't want. Absolutely. And there's probably practically some combination of the two. Building something, it's to solve a problem. Current reality comes in play with Create a Common Database. So we're going to be smart and we're going to be honest with ourselves about what the current circumstances are. But in terms of motivation, I am a big believer that that future, being pulled into the future by a compelling picture, is going to be a lot more motivating than running scared from a past that hasn't been working. Well, especially those phrases like get on the train or just pulling out of the station is not motivating. I totally agree with you. Now, number seven. I think that people in organizations are restricted to doing what their job is. I think that that's okay. And in an excellent organization, people are able to do amazing things in their work. But that is different than creating opportunities for people to make a meaningful difference. And during times of change, you can make the most difference in your organization's future. And so finding ways for people to become part of the process, looking for opportunities for people to step up, asking people to make that difference and make a contribution is what this lever is all about. So rather than just being stuck doing your day job, which as I said, I know that's important, but when you're changing, the more people and the more ways that you can engage people in that change effort, the more successful you're going to be. Again, it seems like you are pointing to the idea that we all wanna have meaning and purpose that that's what gets people out of bed in the morning and the shift from the old industrial revolution that I show up because I'm a cog in the machine. I want to be valuable and make an impact. 
And given that opportunity, I'm going to be more engaged and give you more of my effort, my thoughts, my time, my energy. Yeah. And what, what I found, Maureen, is that people surprise you. So I was working in a, in a regional transit company and they had scenario planning that they were working on. They had three questions that they had to answer simultaneously. What service are we going to provide? Who are we going to provide it for? And where are we going to provide those services? So you start thinking of the permutations of how many responses you could have to that question, and it gets to be very complicated very quickly, right? And so what we did is we had a design team. We had um, mechanics, we had route planners, we had people from HR and accounting and all of the different functions represented. And we were trying to figure out how do we introduce this concept of scenario planning, which is a fairly complex construct to people, right? And that was the mechanic who said, this is just like Mr. Potato Head. And he said, well, like Mr. Potato Head, you change the ears and you can change the eyes. And so as you're making these changes, you're creating a, a different future. And so we ran with that idea and we actually had, we called them Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head sessions. But that idea about going to something very specific and concrete that everybody can relate to and saying, look, this is just about making some changes and you get a different answer when you make these changes. And we literally had sessions where people rotated through this war room to be able to give their best thinking in answers to those questions. And we had them come through for 90 minute sessions and they got educated about what was happening competitively and new technologies that were coming on board and what what the customer wants were. And this organization ended up getting a national award from the transportation board for service. Their customer satisfaction scores were in the 95% range. They had, you know, huge success from this, but it goes back to that very fundamental thing about, hey, if that mechanic was in the room to make a difference, if we reached out and drew a circle that included him and his colleagues in this change effort, rather than saying, this is too complicated, we've got to keep this to the planners, there are people who've gone to school for this, like that's one way to go about it. But what this organization said was, no, no, everybody's going to have a hand in shaping this future. And then we figured out how to go about making that happen and be possible for everybody in a way that made sense to them. As you're speaking, I was thinking of the large group intervention kind of constructs that allow you to ask appropriate questions to multiple levels within the organization and divisions and without having the fear that some person out there, wherever out there is, that doesn't understand our strategy is going to recommend stuff, but that in fact you have curated very carefully those conversations so that Tom can give valuable input given his position and his expertise. Yep. You know, part of this finding opportunities for people to make a meaningful difference is making bigger asks of people. It's looking for more and people are able to realize their full potential when you ask more of them. It's not about shying away or explaining away or like you're saying, it's like, well, they don't know enough to participate in this conversation. Well, if they don't, 
then we need to educate them. I had one client, this was in a merger and acquisition, and they, they had a very complex financial instruments that they were using as part of this merger, floating interest rates and convertible bonds and all kinds of things that were part of the financial package to make this work. The faster they made this merger, the faster they got that financial and taken care of, the less interest they paid, the less debt they had, all kinds of things financially. So rather than underselling people, what we did is we held sessions and they were like mini MBA sessions. People got a mini MBA in finance in that organization, whether they were aroused about out on a platform or whether they were a financial planner who had gotten an MBA, everybody got the same education. And what we found was of course, it made sense to people. When it was explained in a way that was logical and reasonable, you know, I, I grew up with a mentor who said to me, you know, reasonable people exposed to reasonably the same information will come up with reasonably the same conclusions. And so this, this is not surprising that people got on board with that change effort because it made sense to them to get on board with that change effort. I love the idea. My partner runs a junior achievement for Ohio, and they teach fifth graders to run businesses in cities. They come together, and it's astounding what these very young people learn to do. I taught a synthesis class in an MBA program, and I was thinking, no way can these kids do this stuff. They're building in transportation, they're understanding at a simplified level, profit and loss, and they're investing in the arts and they put money in the bank and they go to college. And it is amazing how the concepts can be taught. And if they can be taught to fifth graders, they can certainly be taught to people with jobs. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, who hasn't had a lemonade stand at some point in their life to understand what it's like to go out and and earn money. And so you're talking the next level up from that. And I think that we need to give people credit for being the intelligent humans that they are. And again, if we treat people that way, we can be surprised how smart they really are. And if we don't, we can be surprised how much they undermine us. Oh, absolutely. At the end of the day, how thick-headed we are. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So let's do number eight. People's plates are already full. This is the problem, right? So when it comes time to change, people say, look, I got too much on my plate already. I don't have time for this. I'm already behind on these projects. How am I going to put more on my plate? The solution to this is the lever, make change work part of daily work. And so this lever says, whenever possible, integrate your change work so that it's just part of your daily work. So here's an example of this. We were working in a retail organization and they wanted to become more results oriented. I mean, it was a, it was a massive culture change that they wanted to undertake to become more results oriented. And so what we did is we stepped back and we said, well, what's the simplest application? Where's the leverage? Right. To be able to take a simple application and make a profound difference meetings, right? There are meetings in every organization. And what we did in those meetings is we said, look, let's make sure that for the executive team, that there are a purpose and outcomes for every meeting that gets held, that there are results that will tell us it's time to end the meeting. Not that the clock tells us or that, you know, people typically with meetings, they send in agenda items, 
And so you end up with a mix of things that people care about, but, but not results. They're all activity-based things. And so in this executive team, we said, look, if there aren't a purpose and outcomes shared 24 hours before the meeting time, you don't have to go to the meeting. The first two meetings, people didn't show up. Nobody sent out purpose and outcomes. Nobody came to the meeting. So the message was received loud and clear, and they started to put purpose and outcomes in place. And what happened is naturally, as part of daily work, this disseminated throughout the organization. And so each leader brought it back to their function, and they started to put purpose and outcomes in place. And then for projects, had to have very clear purpose and outcomes. When somebody came in to give a report of progress, they didn't start with the progress. They started with the objectives, and they were really clear about those. And sometimes they needed to change those objectives, but it became a results-oriented conversation and a results-oriented organization. And so that was an example of making change work part of daily work. They could have had a huge effort with all kinds of resources devoted to becoming a results-oriented organization. What we did is we looked for where the leverage was. And in this case, daily work meetings was a huge leverage opportunity. And if we pulled on that lever the right way, it started to disseminate naturally throughout the whole organization. So if you had too much on your plate, what we're going to do is we're going to do the work you needed to do anyway, but we'll do it differently. We'll do it smarter and we'll do it in line with the kind of culture you want to create in the organization. And that culture will start to take hold on its own without having to create an entire change effort around it. I love the idea that you started with acknowledge what doesn't change, what you're doing well and that you're ending with, in some cases, the change is a simple shift in how we think and behave. It's not a big process and project and takes a year and takes a bunch of money. It is this simple. And that seems also to tie to if we were to step into the future and start implementing those behaviors now, this is an example. Yeah, I think, Maureen, you put your finger on it that when you start putting these levers together and you start working on which one's going to best serve me here, which one's going to give me leverage there, that the notion of leverage and putting that into people's minds and saying where are there opportunities to make a, a profound difference with the least investment right? Because that investment that would have gone to your change efforts now available for R&D, it's available for marketing and sales, it's available for all kinds of training and development, that, that money that you would have spent becomes like you're playing with house money in a, in, a, in a poker game because that's money that you hadn't counted on and you don't need to. If you use leverage, you don't need to. Time, money, energy, talent doesn't have to go to that change work. It can go to the core business that you're trying to succeed with. I love that. I love that you're circling back and again, talking about leverage. If we think about how do I lift a piece of furniture? It's not I hoist it because I'm not that strong. <laughs> right. I've got to use something to help me lever it up. And that simple concept helps us as employees, leaders, owners, stakeholders, family members in everything we're trying to do. 
So Jake, we have about two more minutes and then we're going to go to wrap up. What do you want our listeners to take away that is a must know before we start to close? I think the main message that I'm bringing is embrace change. That in fact, there are ways to make it faster, easier, and better. That these levers can serve you well in any situation when you're trying to create a better future for yourself. So embracing it means looking it straight in the eye and saying, where are there opportunities? Where can I get more done with fewer hassles, headaches, and problems? And by bringing these levers out and using them as tools, and again, each of them deals with a different problem. But as you identify those problems, you're able to pull that lever out. You will find faster, easier, better results. And you you and I had a brief conversation before we began because I, I had told you that somebody said to me, what do you mean change is going to be easy? What I said to them, and I say it in the book, is I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But what I am saying is it's going to be a lot easier than it's been for you if you can use these levers. Beautiful. So Jake's new book is Leverage Change, Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results. Jake, how would people connect with you, learn more about the book, buy the book? Sure. The best way is to go straight to my website, which is jakejacobsconsulting.com. And when they go there, there's a free ebook that they can download. It's called 27 Ways to Achieve Faster, Easier, Better Results Immediately. And what it does is it gives you each of those eight levers and it gives you three or four ideas for immediate actions that you can take that are going to get you those faster, easier, better results. So is this going to work for you? Take it out and test it. Use that ebook and be able to implement change for yourself on your own terms. So for our listeners, thank you for joining us. And I do encourage you to go to Jake's website and download his ebook to pursue his books. He makes them action oriented so you can be more effective immediately. Thank you for listening. Please like us, share us through your platforms, and most importantly, be the best leader you can be. Come back and join us again. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.